and welcome to Popscreen, part of Geek Show Podcast Network, where that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the frankly plasticky of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from documentaries to science fiction, from country and western to hip hop. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and I write for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. This week, I've been joined by. Uh, hello, I'm Jeff Pizek. Uh I am a uh, also known as Scrambled Face over on Letterboxd. You can follow me there and see all my overlong reviews of old horror and kung fu and sci-fi and trash and uh, occasionally a, a, a great mainstream film like this one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, th- this week's film uh, is a love story. And like all love stories, it starts with a simple question being asked. That question being, Graham, do you want to do From Justin to Kelly on pop screen? <laughs> Frankly, I-, I know I shouldn't give up hope, but I never thought I'd hear it asked. <laughs> I had been wanting to do this bizarre artifact of the early 2000s since we started. I also knew it was the sort of thing that I could probably never pitch at any of my co-hosts until you came out of the blue with it. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, personally, this is not my usual fare, as as I just hinted. Uh, Not even my musical taste, really. I, uh, you know, I tend to uh, lean more toward non-mainstream stuff and uh, but for some reason when this movie came out and ever since I've been kind of fascinated with uh, just with its existence mm. um, which for reasons we'll get into but yeah I, I figured uh, you know for 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 pop screen I thought this might be a, a pretty ripe uh, uh, subject absolutely yeah um I, you mentioned the idea of mainstream music i'm i'm going through a phase where i'm kind of falling back in love with a lot of mainstream pop again at the moment as i've mentioned on many a pop screen episode but when this came out uh i i would have classified my musical taste as you know fairly left of mainstream myself and yet there are things in this that you see, and I'm not talking about the music a lot. God, am I ever not talking about the music. But there are things in this that I would have judged to be apocalyptically lame if I'd have seen this when it came out. And now it's like a beautiful time machine taking me back to a more innocent age where there, there was a war, but it was in the Middle East, so it was a bit further away. And that's about as innocent as you're going to get this century. And yeah, I, as soon as they started skating on a half pipe, I just thought this could not be more turn of the millennium. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and 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 like you said, it, when it came out, um, it definitely had a different um, implication, I guess, mm. maybe. Um, and now, uh, you know, this was the fir- I watched it last night for the first time in a few years, and it really strikes me as something from its era. Yeah. Um, it does not feel contemporary any longer, at least not to me. Um, but yeah, when. When this came out, it was, uh, you know, is this the future of, of pop music and, and, and film and uh, their neat little tango? Yes, because we, we, 
we should explain for any listeners who are unfamiliar with from Justin to Kelly that the concept of it was was it the first season? Yes, the first season of American Idol. Um, the winner was Kelly Clarkson. The runner-up was Justin Girani. And when they won, they put a movie into production as, as swiftly as possible, starving the two of them. And you're right, this did seem like one other arm of the talent show octopus at that time. You know, this this stuff was already dominating the charts and there was a certain figure of, is it going to dominate the cinemas as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, this was 2003. So it was, yeah, the, it was right after the first season of American Idol, mm. um, which I want to say from what I, again, I was I was not watching it. I've, I've seen uh, way more of this movie than I have ever seen American Idol. Um, <laughs> but I want to say that, that pop idol in the uk was only a year or two maybe before it started spreading out i think poland i read was the first place and then the us was pretty soon at picking up the format that sounds about right yeah i i think my my memory of it is was that pop idol started pretty soon after the turn of the millennium 2001 or 2002 and yeah. it, it quickly I don't know whether it was like, I know it was a very big thing over there, but I don't know whether it was as much of a sort of weird clockwork thing where you knew that every single year, the Christmas number one single would always be whoever had won that season of Pop Idol. It was guaranteed for a while. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was just starting around that, uh, that time and, and the way that it started to leak into the pop culture, um, you know, some of the, the winners and, and, and folks who were close to winning started having their mm. own solo careers and branching out and we're seeing them in commercials and Ruben Studdard was in Scooby-Doo, I want to say, you know, he was the <laughs> season two winner. Um, so yeah, you, it, it was really just starting to get its, its, its fingers out there. And was it also the case I mean, Clarkson, Clarkson still has a career, you know, Clarkson has a talk show. Uh, Girani, mm -hmm. I was Googling around for YouTube videos uh, of Justin Girani, and one of the top hits was an interview with Oprah Winfrey, which was filed at literally as, where are they now? You know, not running from mm -hmm. the cliche, but yeah, that's it. Um, was it also the case with American Idol that the winners tended to have a fairly short shelf life, but the runners-up tended to last for so long that everyone forgot they were involved in this show. There, there's a lot of that. I was, I was looking over the list of winners again, just because you know, I never really followed it. And I would hear about, you know, folks, you know, years later after they were huge superstars. Mm. I want to say Carrie Underwood um, oh, really? was a winner and she definitely has an ongoing career but you're right yeah um i would say jennifer hudson is a good example of someone who you know didn't win uh chris dotry you know for better or worse you know uh, also had a successful uh, career and did not win um and there are a few other folks like that too yeah um it, it's funny that you should mention uh jennifer hudson yeah like I say, I had forgotten she was involved in this at all, but uh, her Dreamgirls co-star, Anika Noni Rose, 
has mm. a fairly thankless supporting role in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to get into her, yeah, she she was. I want to say she was also Princess Tiana in the Princess, Princess and the Frog, and Frog. Movie. Yes. Yeah. So she's done a lot, but yeah, her character here. Um, yeah, I spent a good portion of the movie ha- again, having seen it before several times, wondering, you know, what is her character? What is the uniqueness of her character? And there's a mm. scene where the three of them, so she plays one of Kelly's friends, they go to yeah. spring break together, uh, where the three of them are talking and they identify Kelly as the nice one, which of course, um, and you know, her other friend, Alexa, the blonde boy, uh, boy crazy, uh, rich girl, she's, get call- she's called the party girl. Uh, which she kind of chafes against but they they refer uh uh to kaya i think her name is as as the smart one and at no point is that ever expanded (laughs) upon not that you know she doesn't seem intelligent but it's 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 as a character trait i think it was something that was only on the page you know yeah both of the leads have this friend group where they're friends with two people and I think that the whole idea is that one of them is meant to make them look like less promiscuous by comparison. One of them is there to allay your fears that these nice, wholesome, clean-cut kids are going down to spring break to get laid. And the other one, I don't know, Justin's other friend has like a couple of very clear personality ticks. But as you say, Anika Noni Rose's character is there because there has to be a subplot. Right, right, yeah, and and yeah, that subplot is, I, I remember feeling that, that her subplot, so she eventually pairs up with a waiter, mm, yeah. um, and she has this romantic thing with a waiter who's, who's a local, um, you know, I, I, I always felt that it seemed like a, a very, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of a token representation. She yeah. had one black friend who gets paired off with the Latino waiter who takes her <laughs> yes. to, and, and their scenes are, speci- they're, they're so set apart from the rest of the narrative. He takes her to a specifically, like the, the one one uh, specifically non-white space we see in the film. Yes. Uh, he takes her dancing to a club uh, where they have half of a dance number that they just fade away from. They don't even get to finish their whole song, but you know, it's there. It's, it, it, it's, it's part of it, you know? I, and I feel like that's, that's one of the real time capsule kind of pieces in there because uh, a movie now, you know, the representation I feel would not only be better and more integrated, but it wouldn't be so, uh, you know, you, you're doing this over here and everyone else is having our, the real story over here or something like that it it always felt kind of tacked on to me no completely it reminded me of just a few years after this uh there was a very famous story about the production of hitch you remember hitch the Mm. will smith rom-com uh where apparently they when smith signed up to do that script they like went through hoops trying to work out how to cast his love interest uh, because they still had an attitude that you can't have a black man and a white woman in a rom-com, but you also can't have a black man and a black woman because that marks it out as a film that's just for black audiences. Mm. So they cast Eva Mendes. And I mean, that thankfully feels very different to how these decisions would be made now. 
but I was reminded of it when, as you say, the only two people of colour in this film's version of Miami. Miami? Right. Miami? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we just happen to pair <laughs> off with each other. Right, right, yeah. And again, that was that's something I noticed the first time I watched it, and yeah, it felt it felt more offensive to me back then. Again, because you know, I uh, now I can look back at it. Covent attitudes, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That, again, that's I think that's a lot of the way I'm looking at this movie now. It's is, easier to feel affection for it now. It is kind of a dinosaur. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I was not as harsh on it as I've been in the past. I mean, speaking of things that are practically fossilized, uh, I, I knew that this came from American Idol, but I was still kind of surprised when I saw Simon Fuller's name in the opening credits, because that is a name I have not had to conjure with since, well, since mm. we did the Spice World episode over a year ago. Mm. <laughs> Uh, that was the, Spice World was also produced by Fuller, who at the time was the Spice Girls manager. And like this film, it was written by his brother Kim Fuller, who I mean, you know, I, I don't always object to nepotism. Who's gonna complain about Jeff Bridges turning up in stuff just because he's Lloyd Bridges' son? But Call me judgmental if you want, but I do not think that Kim Fuller would have much of a screenwriting career without his brother in tow. No, no. You know, I didn't... Do you know what else he's worked on? Is there anything other than his own brother's productions? Well, that was that, that was the thing that fascinated me when I was researching the Spikes World episode, because he also... And this is so incongruous... He also wrote an episode of season seven of Red Dwarf, which, mm. you know, I, yeah. I can't Maybe say Maybe he somebody there too. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it, I, if memory says I haven't gone back to Red Dwarf since I was a kid, because I think it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a show you watch at a certain age, perhaps. But uh, I remember his episode as being not that bad. Um, but maybe I was just going slightly mad because it was season seven and I wanted something to cling on to but um, yeah yeah when I saw that there is a shared link between from Justin to Kelly and Red Dwarf my head was just in orbit I could not cope with it <laughs> yeah yeah that's yeah that is a weird connection yeah, I never, mm. I didn't, I didn't look into uh, the screenwriter as much. I did look into the director who I assumed was a choreographer and I think that's correct. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, he also directed She's All That. Oh, that's I think with would be his notable. Yeah. Kirsten um, Dunst, is it? It is. I'll tell you in a second. I think the, um, the problem with this is not that those turn of the millennium teen comedies were bad. A lot of them were very good, but they all had the most generic titles you can imagine. I mean, she's all that bloody hell. That's it. Yeah, that's it's. Uh, I know it's well regarded. You know, again, like when all of this was going on, I was a working adult already, so uh, <laughs> it always seemed like something for kids to me. Yeah. Um, but that you know. Um, yeah. I also noticed that he did the uh, 
version of Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston, which mm, okay. is very well remembered by people who watched mm-hmm. that growing up. Absolutely. So he's not. As, yeah, that's interesting. He's not as green as you would think looking at, well, looking at this, really, is he? Yeah, it, uh, I think it's a, uh, you know, a, a assignment more than a, you know, I, I just looking at his, his, uh, his, his, uh, filmography, I think he, he did a lot of TV work, um, not necessarily a, uh, a passion project for him, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it was, it was Rachel Lee Cook, uh, was in She's All That with, uh, Freddie Prinze Jr., that's it. I was trying to. What is the thing that everyone remembers She's All That for? Uh, and I, I think I was confusing it with Get Over It, which definitely is a young mm. person does. Um, yes. She's All That, I remember it now. It's the one that has the worst ever instance of that old Hollywood cliche where a woman renders herself immediately beautiful just by taking her glasses off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, it's a, it's, my notes say it's a Pygmalion uh, riff, so yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it, it or sort of a, a very short version of Pygmalion, I'm thinking. Right, right. Or like, you know, probably more apropos Greece, um, yes. you know, just a, a simple costume change, but uh, there are definitely some Greasisms in this one as well. Yeah, we, we've gone into its depiction of race slightly more than the film itself has, I think. Mm. Um, but w- when you first see Kelly's friend group, um, she's introduced singing to a basically empty bar. The song is a cover, I think. It's a country and western song. Um, by yeah, Reba I want to say it's a Reba McIntyre. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it is. And you know, like you say, this is this is not my musical taste, and it's not something that certainly not something I was into at the time. But her voice is good. You know, from that generation of pop stars, she's got a bit more grit into it, a bit more snarl in it. I appreciate that. Um, but like I say, the bar is basically empty apart from one cowboy guy who seems to be like the guy you asks about every single week. And then we meet her friends and. I think one of the things that is less pleasantly dated about this is the treatment of Alexa, her other friends, which mm-hmm. is like to call it slut shamey is like on the one hand it's too strong because this is not the kind of film which is like even adult enough to go to slutty territory. Uh, but also shame feels a bit weak for how the film makes every single appearance of it just revolve around a dating over and over again. And you just think, Jesus Christ. Yeah, she's constantly interfering in the main uh, love story. Her whole purpose in it seems to be just to create you know tension and subterfuge to keep these two from getting together uh interestingly i listened to uh i well i didn't listen to the commentary i i I have the dvd and and uh have yet to pull the commentary track out but one day um (laughs) but i did watch some of the 
some of the bonus stuff, which I'd never looked at before. And uh, the director talks about the scene where Alexa uh, has her own musical number. She's, uh, yeah, she gets uh, uh, kind of a showpiece where she's in a bar and she's singing to a group of men and kind of explaining her worldview in a way. Uh, mm. And he said that they they put that in there because he felt that the audience would be turning against her and really wanted to give her a moment to stop and explain herself. Yeah. Um, so that was that was their attempt to try to try to uh, leaven that a little bit, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting, yeah. Um, because the the musical numbers in this, I thought they were very odd. I've I've been thinking a lot about musical numbers recently in general partly because we've, we've just done a few of them on pop screen but also because it feels like after the musical stopped being a guaranteed Hollywood mainstay in the 1960s audiences sort of lost the ability to just accept characters who start singing just because that's that's what kind of film it is and every mainstream film that tries to bring the musical back has to deal with that in a certain way and this one never finds a tactic there is never a consistent approach to the musical numbers there was one very odd moment where I could swear the song was playing on the soundtrack and it gets through about half of the first verse playing on the soundtrack until Kelly Clarkson just suddenly starts singing it and I thought that was the weirdest thing. It's like it's just uncanny. I thought, how can she hear the soundtrack? It's like breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, it goes from non-diegetic to di diegetic. And in, in yeah, I think I know the moment you're talking about. Is it where they're they're looking for each other in the crowd and yeah, uh, the song's playing and yeah, and then suddenly she starts singing. Yeah, I had the same thought. I found it very hard to like really pick the different numbers apart in the way that I like to do for musicals on this show uh, because I can't tell any of the songs apart <laughs> yeah they're pretty they're pretty samey yes. um, again this isn't it isn't my chosen genre it isn't my best favorite style so yeah it does feel all this all the same and uh, uh, you know there's there are you know, slower numbers you know both just depending on which version you watch uh, both Justin and Kelly get their own broody, slow walk on the beach song. Um, the uh, the Justin one, I guess, was cut out for the theatrical version, but uh, I've I only mean, ever seen the extended version. <laughs> that's that show business, folks. Uh, I think mm. I must have seen the theatrical version. I rented this mm. and my rental copy was about an hour 20. I Yes, yeah, I'm, 90 minutes for the extended I was not aware there was like a Ridley Scott extended. Is it is it two and a half hours? Is it like Kingdom of Heaven where all of the subplots <laughs> in it just make sense now? No, no, it's it's just <laughs> it's ninety minutes total, and it's it's two extra songs. There's, uh, they both say extended version. So there's a song called Brighter Star, which is sort of the movie's uh, summer loving set piece where after Justin and Kelly go on they date they're with their respective friend groups and they're singing to them about what happened and, and it turns in that one actually does turn into a full-blown musical number where they're dancing through different environments and things and 
uh, I was kind of surprised to learn because I, I never remember which version is which, but I, I surprised to learn that that was cut out because um, it's, it's, you know, I'm not gonna say it's a great song, but it definitely helps move the story along. It's pretty, uh, you know, entertaining as a set piece, you know? Yeah. I'm surprised to hear that there was a, a Justin Girani solo song that was cut because presumably, I mean, why, why does this film exist other than to show off these two singers, right? Right. No. Yeah. It, it, maybe it's just for pacing because, you know, when it happens is uh, right after the, the big uh, uh, jet ski <laughs> incident, the jet ski race, he roars up on the beach and, you know, kind of skids it to a stop and gets off, takes his helmet off and then just starts singing his, his, you know, broody song of the soul. Um, so yeah, it does kind of slow down the movie for sure. So that, that's gotta be why. Davis, I, I can't remember uh, if it's on, there's a lot of aquatic transportation in this film, so I am i can't remember quite which one is which, but there's one where he is on a speedboat or a jet ski or something, and he starts singing straight after his dialogue, like he's, he's talking and literally his next sentence is sung. And yes. my, I, I really thought he was doing it to take the piss. I thought he was joking until, you know, the orchestra <laughs> comes up in the background. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly the point you're talking about. It's, it's, it's like you were saying earlier, you know, that, that transition of a character from, you know, telling a story, being in a narrative film, and suddenly they're singing, and that's how the story is being, uh, yeah, it's, it is a really weird moment. Yes. <laughs> and... I suppose um, we've been talking about how odd it is that Justin Girani's solo song isn't in, but to be honest, I don't know what stage his career was at by the time this came out. I don't know if it had already started to go on the slide or whether maybe it always was. I mean, he was the runner-up, but it is kind of obvious why Kelly Clarkson beat him, really. I hate to say it. It does feel like kicking yeah. him when he's down, but it really is. Yeah, that the final number, um, it's like the big, the kind of anemic cover of that's the way I like it. Yes. Uh, it's so, it's really, it really underlines the disparity in their personality and talent. Like, she's, uh, you know, just kind of singing the song, going for it, and he's really working it, and he's got these facial expressions that he, <laughs> he looks very angry at something off screen all the time, you know, and yeah, it just seems like he's working a lot harder, and um, she just feels, she feels kind of effortless, you know, obviously she's playing a character, it's a constructed persona for her, but she, I think she slips into it pretty well, despite, you know, how much she didn't want to be in this or, or be a part of it, you know, um, she famously says she like pretty much cried through the through the production of it because she really didn't want to be in it, um, but was was required to when she won. Yes, yeah, that's very that's a very strange clause. I guess it's just it's part of the different relationship that Britain and America have with I guess cinema as a whole. Really, it's never been not since the 50s it hasn't really been enough of a production line to make the idea of a pop idol film seem non-incongruous there have been efforts to do this with reality show stars but as with the runners-up the the best 
people, the people who've gone the furthest are the ones who lose a contest and then bury it and go off and establish themselves properly. Like, I don't know, I don't think this is well known in America. This could blow your mind. But after Pop Idol took off, they applied that format to everything over here. There were contests for every corner of life. And one of them, there was quite a successful series on the BBC of contests to find stars for big West End musicals. One of them was called I'll Do Anything. Um, It was supposed to find someone uh, to play the role of Nancy in a new production of Lionel Bart's Oliver. Uh, I forget who won it. But I'll tell you who didn't win it, who competed in it, and I now can't believe it's the same person, Jesse Buckley. Really? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I I knew nothing about her her, her singing uh, at all. So she's a, so she she I know her as an actress. Yeah, yeah, and only, you yeah. know you know her for the reasons I'm sure that everyone else knows her now for Chernobyl and I'm thinking of ending things and all of the mm-hmm. extraordinary work that she's been doing since. But yeah, started off as a runner up on a BBC talent show. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder who uh, who will come out of the woodwork years from now who, who are barely remembered. You know, they're still doing American Idol over here. It, 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 they stopped it for a couple of years and ABC picked it up. And uh, again, I haven't, I'm so far removed from it. I haven't heard of any of the winners or any of that. But, um, you know, you never know. Like the the whole point of these talent competitions is to to, you know, pull these folks out of obscurity. And even if, you know, they're not the top winner, um, just getting their name out there, I think, for a lot of them, like like a lot of reality stars, I think is just that's the end game is to, you know, get your face out there, get your talents out, and, and you never know what's going to come out of it. Absolutely, yeah. In a strange way, it has been a star-making system, just not quite in the way anyone thought it was going to be. It's like it's right. not rocketed many winners to superstardom, but it's it's turned up some interesting people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while we talk about Justin, uh, we haven't talked about his friend group, which I assume is because it's too excruciating. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the one friend uh, is, you know, the horn dog uh, party guy. He, so the three of them are part of something called, I wrote it down, it's BR and J parties, and they're the the party kings of spring break and they're known for throwing the wildest you know uh whipped cream bikini contests and all this stuff and they've always got a scheme going um so he's got the one friend who's you know sort of he's sort of the ringleader and he's really pushing hard this sort of you know uh huckster you know keep the party going kind of uh hits on every girl he sees especially the the cop uh, the sexy yes. cop lady um and then his other friend is a very kind of a you know straight-laced nerd type of character who's met his girlfriend uh, uh who he spends the whole movie looking for uh he met her online in a xena chat room <laughs> uh, <laughs> he says at one point and he gets sunburned and has all sorts of mishaps he gets beat up by uh, a, a boyfriend of uh, one of the guys that the or, or the girl that the uh, the party guy friend 
is uh, is hooking up with. And I think like to your point you said earlier, I think those friends are set up to kind of place Justin in the middle. You know, he's he's yeah. a fun party guy, but he's not that wild, and but he's not quite as much of a you know a nerd as this other kid. So he's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think maybe if they had developed an Ikanoni Rose's character so we actually got to see her be smart rather than just have one instance where we're told it, uh, mm-hmm. you could say that they were doing the same thing with Kelly. But yeah, with Justin, the positioning is staggeringly obvious. But it, it is just so funny to me that when they are looking for ways to make it clear that this poor kid is just an irredeemable nerd, an absolute social misfit, the last person you should take to spring break, the thing they land on is he met a girl on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, 2003. Yes. How much more 2003 can it possibly get? You watch it and you think, you know, this is this is when Facebook was launched. It's in some mm-hmm. ways it's not that distant, but then you watch something like this and you think, no, it's a billion years ago, isn't it? Yeah. So so much of the subterfuge that we spoke about, like for Alexa is trying to intercept messages that they're, they're, she she gets into the text message game with them. Mm. And they're they don't have smartphones yet they're they're flip phones they're there's you're using old tech speak where you drop all the the vowels out of it uh my uncle still texts like that you know so uh, uh but it's pretty funny to yeah to see it like that i feel like that's the kind of thing where uh you show that to a young audience now just the appearance of the phones will make them laugh completely yeah i mean it's a circle of life i remember when I was younger watching movies and TV shows made in the 80s and just howling at the ridiculous bricks that they had as mobile phones. Mm. And now I'm the old guy sat there going, why, why are you laughing at that phone? You can play Snake on that. What do you mean yeah, you don't know yeah. what Snake is? <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's a, I don't know if it's a better place to mention this, but there's a scene where the, the party guy friend gets into a, a a hot tub with his cargo shorts on. And my immediate thought was like, your phone, look out your, your <laughs> you know, your, your keys and your phone and your wallet, you know, like, how are you going in there? But like, I, he probably didn't have his phone in there. Or if it did, it was so small, it was in his top pocket. He didn't have to worry about it. So, Yeah. Yeah, I guess mobile phones never went through that stage that other technology goes through where they were very sort of nerdy, embarrassing geek thing early on. They were always kind of high achiever stuff when they were launched, I think. Sure, yeah. It was a status symbol to begin with, I would say. Uh, When they're introduced, like I don't know whether this is me because my year for different American accents is extremely British. Like, if I'm really on form, I can just about tell if someone is actually from Canada. That's the level Mm -hmm. that I'm operating at. But they walk on, and they've flown into Miami from Pennsylvania. Um, Kelly's character, they're they're from Texas, right? They're Texans. Yes. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's fairly explicit, but there's no mention, I think, of where Justin and his friends come from, apart from one brief moment where the horn dog friend says, and this whipped cream 
Bikini Party is going to be judged by, guess who? The Pennsylvania Posse. And it's only mm. later on that I realised, oh, that's them. They're from Pennsylvania. I spent like about 40 minutes thinking, who was the, am I meant to know who they were? <laughs> were they like a hip-hop group back then? Is there going to be a Joe Biden cameo? That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> if only, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been something. Yeah, no, they, again, it's, it's the, I don't think that their geographical origins are really that crucial. I think it's mm. just, they're not from Florida and they're on spring break, you know. Um, I definitely think that the Texas setting for or where, where Kelly's from is, was strategic because, yeah. Um, I mean, she was originally, I think she was originally from Texas, but she definitely has that heartland, um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really work if she was from los angeles or something like that she has to sell that aw shucks you know nice girl just unassuming sort of uh and i think that texas sells that a little better than some other places she is uh, as the song goes just a small town girl yes it's true um yeah and and that's actually that that has sort of put an extra piece in the puzzle of why Kelly Clarkson's career continues to this day and Justin Garani's doesn't because you can see as early as this movie that she is very easy to define and he isn't so much it's like you look at Justin Garani and you think well okay he's a pop singer but he doesn't look like a pop singer he's not sexy he's not ugly but he's not sexy and you know, he doesn't have an obvious link to R&B or country or some other genre that you could use as a kind of a base of operations while you plot out a pop career. Even by the end of an 80-minute film, you're still thinking, I don't know, who is this guy? He seems nice enough, but who is he? Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. And, you know, as much as the script tries to give him, surround him with characters to, you know, tell him what he's not, mm-hmm. or, you know, but we're, yeah, you don't get much insight to him. Uh, I think as a performer, he comes off as, uh, you know, I, I from what I could find out about him, I think he was a stage performer. Like he came up as as more of a, you know, a, a musical theater oh, right. type of kid. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, you're kind of in, in that way, you're like kind of sublimating your personality to your role. You're not necessarily selling mm. yourself as the star, you know, whereas I think uh, Kelly had kind of that same background, but she had been doing some like TV and film work prior to being on Idol or around the same time. So I think she had kind of figured that out a little more, a little more or maybe yeah. it was just they had she had better handlers. You know, I don't I don't I don't know. It could be, yeah. I think that the one surprise that uh, I got out of Justin's character is that he he knows how to beatbox, which I thought was a a genuine (laughs) shock moment. Right, right. In his rapping friend. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he has several. That guy has several rap scenes. And if you look him up, he's primarily like a, a visual artist. He's done like visual art and kind of like abstract expressionist really far away from his character you wouldn't uh yeah you wouldn't believe it i wonder if but, any um, of them involve whipped cream bikinis whether that's part of his his performance oeuvre i'm sure i'm sure someone uh, has requested it <laughs> you know <laughs> 
yeah, um, I, I don't know. I wondered if that um, that sort of beatboxing and rapping scene is obviously meant to be a kind of cringe comedy moment, and the girls who are watching them react with absolute disdain. It is quite weird to think that by 2003, you know, there's there's another uh, gangly, curly-haired, white dork who came up through manufactured pop who's actually doing pretty well with hip-hop and R&B-based music, which is, of course, Justin Timberlake, who's... Mm-hmm. Whose existence, as much as I don't like Justin Timberlake at all, that that just feels like the future compared to how impossibly square the pop in this film is. You can see that as being you can you can sort of understand why people glommed onto those early Justin Timberlake records in a way that I always struggle to when they were actually current because if this is the competition, yeah, fine, I get it. Yeah, yeah, the other Justin, I mean, I would say all around is a, is more of a per, uh, uh, has a more of a persona as a performer, you know, mm. as an actor, he was willing to take risks and and do kind of. Uh, you know, poke fun at himself, you know, which kind of makes you bulletproof in, in one sense, you know, yeah. but he was also, yeah, he was pretty versatile too. He could do pop, he could do more R&B, like dance tracks, you know. Um, I don't really know what Justin's career, or Justin, uh, this Justin, Garini, Garani, however you say his name, unfortunately, I don't know how to say I it, mean, that is he, the kind uh, of yeah. symbol of how badly this went for him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think nowadays he's pretty much doing regional theater and and you can hire him to speak at your corporate event. Uh, if you go to his website, he's got right. some great, uh, yeah, some great packages available. I mean, I can uh, sort of see him being a good musical theater actor because I think the things mm-hmm. about him that are liabilities as a pop star, the fact that he, he has very little personality and he seems kind of earnest um are things that you know great musical theater careers have been built on in many ways yeah absolutely yeah i can definitely see that and and he's done a lot of that work i think he's only made a couple of actual albums but if mm-hmm. you look at like what he's been doing he yeah, he's done a lot of stage work and and yeah it makes sense i mean he's still he's still getting his name out there and people remember who he is I think that he could possibly do better with comedy that has a slightly better script than this. I mean, you can tell exactly what kind of movie it is because there is a bit where Justin falls out of the, a window and there is a very obviously post-dubbed, oh, that's going to leave a mark on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yep. that, that is the marker of a certain kind of comedy, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, the humor in this is is it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Um, I can't lie. It reminded me of kind of, when, when, there's that bit where the dorky kid who I can't remember his name. I'm sorry, but when he's mm. he's sort of going to get a suntan, he says he's going to go off and get a suntan. And of course, the joke is that he gets sunburned. But in between, mm. there's this um, there's this very odd 
little shot where he just rubs some tan lotion over himself and just goes ah, and sinks back onto the beach and spreads his arm out. And it reminds me of those kind of children's sitcoms where they're dealing with an audience who don't quite know how the world works yet. So if someone says, all right, I'm going to go to the drive through you have to show them getting in the car, going out, getting a burger, eating it, going, mmm, that's a tasty burger, because you can't assume the audience knows this stuff yet. Yeah, uh, I think that's a perfect summation of a lot of the storytelling in this movie. Mm. Yeah. And it's odd because it's not it's not exactly a children's movie, isn't it? It feels it, it's on that weird edge. This is slightly before people started seeing twins all the time, I think. But it feels kind of like that. It's like the stabilizer wheels for your uh, for a proper teen movie. If you're not quite old enough to watch She's All That or Get Over It or What You're Gonna Do or That's Gonna Leave a Mark, or any of the other films that I've just made up. Um, you can watch this and it'll ease you into it. I think that's kind of what they're going for. It's gotta be. It's gotta be. You know, we, we talked about how anachronistic it feels. It feels like the kind of story that would have happened for a previous generation. For mm. not, not even necessarily for pop stars you're putting into a, a template, but like just that kind of teen romance there's you know it's it's very chaste and wholesome um you know one of the you know the we mentioned that the whipped cream bikini contest you know there's no nudity mm. uh there's another contest where where some uh couples go into the water to change clothes with each other no nudity like when i think of the 80, the 80s teen comedies <laughs> all of that would have predicated you know yes just copious amounts of, of unnecessary nudity this is the kind of movie that says well that nudity is unnecessary you know why <laughs> why would we you know and 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 again you know they, they i think they were going for that pg rating they were playing off of that that populist you know they got popular from this tv show there were a lot of kids watching it with their families um i think they were kind of consciously making it that way you know so even yeah. alexa with her you know, boy crazy kind of attitude really doesn't go that far in it. It's more talk and, oh, look at that boy more than, you know, actually acting upon it very much, you know? Yeah, because it's like that. there is one other thing that is obviously absent in this film other than, as you say, any sort of real sexuality um that's that there's very little drinking in it there's lots of talk about alexa mm. dancing on the table but we we are to assume that she just does this because she's a fun loving gal you know right yeah no there's never uh yeah none of the none of the uh the party stuff really has a lot of drinking there's no keg stands you know which again I don't know if people were actually doing by 2003, you know, but it's the I kind of thing, they, again, I... They probably were, right? Yeah. Probably. I mean, like, when I hear what kids are doing now, I'm like, yeah, okay, great. You know, that's, that's, it, it's a lot, it's a, they, they have their own rituals and things, but uh, there's always a debauchery to it. You know, mm. the whole point of spring break is to get away from your parents and go wild and, you know, people hook up and all of that. And it's, it's, there this is not that you know people are going there to party and then go back to their hotel with their you know at a reasonable hour <laughs> yeah in this movie you know 
I did wonder with its cast of teenage pop stars and its spring break plotline, is this what Harmony Corinne was inspired by when he made Spring Breakers? Oh, undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it, pretty much the same movie. Yes. <laughs> Uh, There is one sort of minor note about this film's release that I found fascinating. Um, It it didn't earn much money at the box office when it came out, but Mm -hmm. it nearly earned even less because some cinema chains threatened not to show it because Fox wanted to shorten the release window to just six weeks until it came out on uh, DVD and well it would be VHS back then yeah they still have VHS Mm -hmm. Um, so this is an unexpected streaming pioneer isn't it yeah it's uh it definitely uh uh, put the fire under them well I think what happened was that they were they were going to uh uh release it on dvd sooner than the theaters like is that how it worked it was yeah, there was the yeah. contention was that they okay because then i think what happened was that because it didn't make any money they said well screw it and just <laughs> put it on dvd six weeks later anyway you know to recoup their losses a little bit but um but yeah no it's definitely a a, a precursor to those to those uh, conversations we were having a year or two ago mm-hmm. yes yeah, that's a, that's a very odd, uh, <laughs> an odd historical uh, pioneer there. I think. Yeah. There's there's one other thing that really threw me, and I cannot figure out. Maybe this is in the in the director's cut, which I didn't know existed until you mentioned it. So that's it. I know what I'm watching tonight, listeners. Um, <laughs> but when. Uh, the the nerdy kids internet date finally turns up. She looks significantly older than the rest of the cast, and I don't know whether that's meant to be part of the gag, or you know, is it just because? But apart from Justin Girani and Kelly Clarkson, everyone in this is about ten years older than the characters they're playing. Is it just that there's like? one person who was lit unfortunately and looks of age i don't know i think that could be it i didn't get the sense that she was her character was supposed to be significantly older um yeah I, but i think if a teen comedy in the 2000s even won this tame was going for an age gap joke they would make it kind of grotesque because that was just the style of the humor back then. You know, you'd get Cloris Leachman in for a cameo or something. Yeah, no, that that's that's true. And in fact, uh, you mentioning that scene uh, and and the other other cut on the DVD, um, they uh, have deleted scenes on there, and there's an alternate version of the scene where he meets his girlfriend and in so if you remember just prior to that the uh he's talking with the the jock guy who had busted into his uh uh room earlier and accused mm. him of, of you know sleeping with his girlfriend and they had they kind of uh had this jokey male bonding uh uh relationship where the nerd is is kind of talking the jock through you know exploring his feelings and and 
you know, meeting her emotional needs and that sort of thing. And mm. uh, so in, uh, uh, in the alternate version of that scene, uh, the jock tells uh, the nerd friend that he's found his, his perfect partner now because they split up, they're gonna go their separate ways. Uh, and his perfect partner is revealed to be a man. Uh, and they, and a guy comes from off screen and they hug and, uh, and the nerd just kind of gives them a kind of a look and, and they go off. And that was, that was the alternate version of that scene that wasn't used. Um, is, which is fascinating. Yeah, that is like that sounds like it was actually weirdly tastefully handled for this stage. It, in uh, yeah, it is. It is. It, it's not. There's no homophobia in the scene at all. The way it plays out, it just turns out. Well, you know, I figured it out. I'm good. Uh, I think that if that scene was in the movie, this movie would have had a, a way different uh, feel by the end of it. You know, it would have felt at least somewhat inclusive where, you know, we've noted before, like anybody who's not kind of conforming to that white hetero, uh, you know, gets mm -hmm. their own story over here, you know? And so, yeah, I, I, I found that really interesting and, and I kind of wish that was in the movie instead. Yeah. Uh, that, that is fascinating. My main memory of representation around this age was that uh, it, it was so thin that we were having to champion an Oliver Stone movie about Alexander <laughs> the Great, which is oh. like, who, who, do uh. you, who would you rather go to, to for gay representation, Kelly Clarkson or Oliver Stone? I think I know where I'd put my cross these days, but um, yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, but yeah, that, that is a genuine bombshell. I'm tempted to end on it, but I will ask if you've got any other uh, any other final thoughts beyond from Justin to Kelly, gay rights pioneer. <laughs> uh, other other than that, really, just you know, the the, the cover of Vacation by the Go Go's in here is is terrible. Oh man, <laughs> just it, yeah, isn't it just? Then it comes in at the worst point where. It's over the the opening credits of them going to Miami, and you think, is every musical number in this going to be say what you see? Because I'm yep. not sure I can deal with that. Yeah, yeah, it's a hell of a way to open up. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm glad that didn't become its own hit. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, listeners, if you've enjoyed today's episode, there's a whole archive of pop screen to listen to, including uh, Jeffrey's previous appearance on the show covering Coopless Ice, uh, which was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. You can also get exclusive episodes if you donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. Uh, but until next week, I've been your host, Graham. And I've been Jeff. And we'll see you next week. Thank you.